You are listening to Seattle Growth Podcast, available free on iTunes. I'm Jeff Schulman, a professor at the University of Washington's Foster School of Business, and I'm excited to welcome you back for another episode of Seattle Growth Podcast. This season is focused on finding community in a dynamic city. Each episode spotlights some of the interesting people in Seattle who are building community and bringing people together. Over the course of this season, you will hear from leaders in tech, comedy, music, art, dance, and emergency preparation. Today's episode is focused on the unique places in which casual interaction with strangers can build a sense of community. You'll hear from Nathan Voss, an artist, filmmaker, photographer, and author, all of that by day, and a metro bus driver by night. His community-building work has been showcased on NPR, The Seattle Times, King 5, and landed him on a spot in Seattle's magazine's 2018 list of 35 most influential people in Seattle. In the interview, Voss shares stories from his popular blog, The View from Nathan's Bus, and he also talks about how it led to his successful book, The Lines That Make Us. The interview offers a unique perspective on finding community in a city that is changing rapidly. Today's episode also features Maisha Barnett, a public space developer with over a decade of experience shaping community gathering spaces. She talks about her work with the Jimi Hendrix Park development and the redevelopment of Powell Barnett Park, named after the musician, baseball player, and community leader who was her grandfather. Whether you have lived here your whole life or are just joining this city, these interviews give insight about Seattle, how it was, how it is changing, and where the city is going. Before we get to the first interview, I want to thank you for your support. Together, we sold out the premiere of my documentary, On the Brink. It was an honor to see the Langston Hughes Performing Arts Institute full of people ready to learn about Seattle's history and a story of hope and determination. And I'm thankful for all the media attention the film has received from King 5, from the Seattle Times, from Crosscut, from KUOW, The Stranger, and KNKX. If you missed out on the premiere, you still have a chance to see the film hailed as, and I quote, a cautionary tale and a call to action in the face of Seattle's rapid growth. On the Brink will be screening at the Northwest African American Museum on Tuesday, June 25th. You can learn more about the movie and get tickets at onthebrinkmovie.com. Come see what Crosscut called a powerful new documentary. And as Margaret Larson implored her audience on King 5's New Day Northwest, please go see this film. Again, get your tickets at www.onthebrinkmovie.com. Now, join me as I sit down with Nathan Voss. I am here with Nathan Voss. He is the author of The Lines That Make Us. Uh, Nathan, thank you very much for joining me today. Hello. Very good to be here. Thank you. So why don't you just start uh, by telling me what brought you to Seattle? I wish I had an exciting story in which I was the principal agent of everything that happened. It's my family moving up here from LA. Um, When I was a toddler, I moved back and forth and grew up partly in Los Angeles, mostly in Seattle. So we're here to talk about how people find community or build community in a dynamic city. Yeah. But first, uh, the city has grown so much in the last Mm -hmm. seven years, especially. And you've been here uh, since being a toddler. What changes have you found most striking in this city? Gosh, what a big question to ask. Um, My immediate answer would have to be that there's been a shift in the types of interactions uh, that happen. 
um, probably because of the shift in the type of uh, general attitudes of folks that live here, a shift in age dynamics and uh, the introduction of communications technology. By now, it's a cliche to say that uh, cell phones and other forms of tech uh, alienate us and interrupt our ability to interact with others. But it's true. And it seems like you have to be a little more proactive now to reach other people, especially strangers. Um, there seems to be a little less in the way of trust there. And it's a hurdle that I, usually it has to be me who reaches out to someone uh, on the street or elsewhere rather than expecting them to come to me. But people tend to respond well once you do that. And so yeah. where have you found that most striking? Where have you noticed this lack of ability to interact um, or connect? Okay, I'm just going to have to say it out loud here. South Lake Union. Um that demographic of um, tech workers is uh, a fascinating one. Um, and I want to veer away from the narrative of um, emphasizing antagonism between new tech workers in Seattle and Seattle residents. I don't know how constructive that is, but there's definitely a divide. And I think there's a way for this to be more inclusive than it is. There seems to be such a dichotomy between uh, folks who are young professionals making large amounts of money and not having too much to do with the other folks in Seattle who have been here for a really long time. So you talk a little bit about some of the challenges as new people come yeah. in, uh, particularly maybe uh, for one industry and mm -hmm. the challenges in, in bridging the divide. My understanding is that you have many hats, actually. So we introduced you as the author of The Lines That Make Us, mm -hmm. but you've also uh, built community in driving a bus. Exactly. And you're a photographer. Yes. And uh, the bus driving is, is, of course, really key here. It is possible to get to a place of satisfying interaction with folks who you may not have initially assumed are going to uh, be that way. I would drive the 70 through South Lake Union and pick up basically nothing but Amazon employees. And we're assigned the same bus route for a three to six month period. So you've got the same passengers for three months. And when I first started driving that route, I'd say hi to every single person who gets on the bus, which is something I do uh, wherever I'm driving. Uh, none of them would, would respond. Most of them would not make eye contact. Um, but over time, as they got on my bus every day, they began to, I'm assuming, realize that, okay, it's, it's okay to interact here. We can, like, invest enough trust in this strange, friendly bus driver to say thank you as we're exiting. And you sort of bring them around to these longstanding Seattle traditions of saying thank you to the bus driver. I have not encountered that in any other city. Only here does everyone say thanks to the bus driver. And me saying hi to every single one of these tech folks eventually uh, turns into something kind of beautiful. And I want to believe that there's possibilities for growth here. I just uh, gave a TED Talk about this precise issue. It's called Why We Need Strangers. And I was emphasizing very briefly that um, when you have a positive interaction with a complete stranger, your brain feels a sense of belonging and connectedness to society at large uh, in a way that you actually cannot experience uh, with friends or people you know. It's got to be a stranger um, because friends and people you know are not the society at large. And so with all these new people coming here, it isn't necessary to go out and make friends with everybody. It's more about the sense of community that gets established by establishing comfort and familiarity just with strangers, acknowledging the universal humanness of nodding at someone you walk by on the street and trying to introduce that sort of um, 
a small town thing into a big city and developing your niche and everyone goes about doing that in different ways I try to do it uh, on the bus by interacting with everyone and I feel like I sort of have a responsibility to let people know it's okay to say hi <laughs> it's okay to you know talk about the weather or sports or real estate or whatever else that people like to talk about now. So you would say hi to people as they got on the bus and they would say nothing back? Zero. And Would they look down? What would they be doing? They would usually look down. Um, Do they pretend you didn't exist? <laughs> like, it's hard to this not This is an automated this. bus? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Um, and uh, there's many reasons uh, to be withdrawn. There's nothing wrong with being introverted. But, uh, yeah, it is kind of weird to be on the other end of that, of I'm greeting every single one of these folks. And I've had conversations about this with other bus drivers. Some of them think that, okay, this is an age thing. All the young people that I talk to don't say hi, and all the older people that I talk to do. I, in my anecdotal experience, I would argue that it's more of a, a class or income thing. When I'm driving the bus in South Seattle, uh, where there's disproportionately less people of extraordinary affluence, uh, people do say hi. On the 7 on Rainier Avenue, uh, I say hi once again to every single person getting on. They all say hi back to me. Um, doesn't matter if they're old or young. And if I'm up in uh, North Seattle somewhere, yeah, it takes a little more work, but um, it's possible. Eventually, you know, you meet people who are willing to interact anywhere. When I was first driving the bus, we had those. Um, so I, so, so I've been driving for Metro for twelve years. It's my uh, quote unquote night job. My my day job is filmmaking and photography, but at night I like to tool around on the bus. Great job for an artist. Um, when I first started driving bus, we had those older models that had stairs. You walked onto the bus, and there was uh, the passenger seats started right there, very close to where the driver sat. So it was very easy to have a conversation with a passenger. Now we have those newer low-floor models where there's a large wheel well that separates you, the driver, from where the passengers are seated. And so it's a little bit less conducive to passenger interaction. When they first started introducing those coaches, I thought, oh, no, I'm going to have to go work on my resume because nobody's going to want to talk to me with this big, fat wheel well in the way, you know, the interior layout. But it turns out the interior layout of a bus does not affect the fact that humans want to connect. <laughs> it doesn't matter if there's a wheel well there or whatever else. So you don't mind people yeah. talking to you while you're trying to drive? I hate it when I'm driving in a car. Uh, I can't imagine a bus full of people. Well, Great question. I like to think that uh, bus driving most principally is the act of multitasking. Okay. You are behind the wheel, uh, uh, cognizant of the fact that you're driving this incredibly expensive piece of equipment. Yeah. One of those 60-foot trolley buses costs $1 million, and um, they don't want you to crash it. <laughs> no, they do so, not. <laughs> so you're, you're uh, thinking about that. You're, you're, you're paying attention to the, to the wire up above. You know, the bus mm -hmm. is connected to the wires. And you're thinking about cars and pedestrians. And you're thinking about, maybe you're thinking about schedule uh, and the passengers inside sort of keeping an eye on things. Meanwhile, you're also carrying on a conversation with the person at the front. And asking anyone to do that for the first time for just a city block would be overwhelming. But eventually you get used to it. And it's incredibly engaging to be doing all of those things at once. And time flies. I love uh, the act of 
being out there with the people. I would not enjoy the gig if I didn't have an opportunity to talk with folks. And it becomes, um, like any habit, I suppose, really easy to uh, interact while you're driving. It's similar to listening to music while you're driving a car. We think nothing of that because we do it all the time. And uh, for me, I say hi. Talking to people gets me out of my head. And so we're going to talk more about the lines that make us your yeah. book that's now available at your local bookstore uh, and online, I'd imagine. Indeed. Um, but first, uh, was this a social experiment <laughs> that you would say hi to everybody even if they didn't look at you? Or was this your own personal need to connect with strangers? What, what was driving this? Great question. It's a mixture. When I first started this job as a college student and um, – I had a fascination with buses, even though that had nothing to do with my chosen fields of like art and filmmaking and so on. And I'm just barely old enough to have grown up before the internet. And uh, I was raised uh, to say hi to people and to hold doors open for people. Um, Doesn't matter if it's a man or a woman, you know, you hold the door open for folks. You try to be nice. And there's sort of a responsibility that we have. This is, you know, what I was raised with. A responsibility that we have to let others know what it feels like to be respected or loved. And uh, we have sort of a duty to do that. Um, And when I first started driving the bus, I did not have an obsession with talking to people. I did not initiate conversations with passengers. I was pretty shy as a child, but it was just common decency to say hi or make eye contact to every person getting on. Because, look, there's someone getting on this bus who's two feet away from me, I'm going to say hi. Also, there's an advantage uh, from a safety perspective of sort of defusing people as they get on. Making eye contact and saying hello are what I would attribute the principal reason that there's less security incidents on my bus because respect has such enormous currency on the street and what you're really doing when you're saying hello or whatever else is letting them know that you are acknowledging them as human. You respect them. And uh, fights on the street are almost never about anything important at first glance. You know, somebody stole somebody else's $5 or something. But what they're always actually about is respect. And uh, establishing community as a form of respecting others. Which it it still blows my mind that as, as you have that view of the world... People walk right past you from two feet away. Yeah, it's it's hilarious, actually. Um, and it's geogra- it's geographically specific. Uh, some neighborhoods do that, some don't. Um, and uh, and and further answer to your question, what what made me do this? Um, on the one hand, yes, it was um, as raised to be nice to folks. But on the other hand, I would talk to some of my other colleagues, and they would say. You just got to say hi to everyone. It doesn't matter if they respond. You're doing your part. You greet them. You're getting paid. You're supposed to be nice. They don't have to do anything. They're not getting paid. Um, And I've grown to learn the (laughs) unexpected dividends, uh, such as safety or such as um, establishing the small town type of vibe. So now you've got The Lines That Make Us, uh, a book that you've written available at your local bookstore Uh and online. Thank you. Um, (laughs) Tell me about the book. So I've been writing this blog. I started driving the bus in 07, and uh, I did not immediately commence writing a blog. I want to emphasize to people that the bus driving came first. The blog about bus driving came next. It wasn't uh, here I am as a budding anthropologist uh, trying to write ethnographies of strangers. Um, um, And what's the blog? The blog is called The The View from Nathan's Bus. 
And I've been driving the bus for about five years or so. And people began to, friends began to, um, the nice word is encourage. The actual word is demand that I write a blog because uh, you always have all these stories as a bus driver. And they were special to me, especially these unexpectedly positive things. And I uh, sort of resisted it because I, you know, was like trying trying to go by this maxim of people nowadays have a tendency to document life more than actually live life. And I don't want to do that. But the thing is, both of those are important. And writing the blog has been huge for me in uh, actually remembering some of these wonderful things that happened, but also getting to share them and... Uh, we know from various research that going on the internet isn't something that causes people to feel happier. But I wanted there to be a repository of stuff online that was just uh, a document of these little beautiful moments that we all have on the street or elsewhere with strangers that are really worth preserving and sharing. And can you share maybe one? Yesterday, I was doing the 120, and a passenger, a middle-aged woman recognized me from the last time she saw me, which was over a decade ago when I was just a new bus driver. And she insisted that she remembered me because of my hair. And we had this extended conversation about hair that wasn't really about hair, but about the fact that we appreciated each other's existence and that, okay, there's friendly people out here in this universe. And uh, she's one of them. And she thought I was one of them. And Uh, We had a great time. The uh, small talk is fascinating because I have a tendency to call, to think of small talk as moments of connection, since that's really what they are. Um, You're not actually talking about weather. You're you're exchanging acknowledgement and appreciation for other people. And so you've got this blog, remind me of the name? The View from Nathan's Bus. So you've got this blog, The View from Nathan's Bus. How did you then decide to take the, the plunge and write The Lines That Make Us? So the blog is pretty large. Um, there's a few thousand stories on there. And the response has been really strong. And when I thought, when I, when I began it, I thought, oh, this is just some small thing that I'm going to show my friends what I'm doing when I'm working. Uh, but it's resonated for a lot of people, especially those uh, who work in customer service or public service or others with an interest in transit or folks who just want to read about people interacting from sort of the safety of an armchair. They don't have to come ride my bus in the middle of the night to experience these um, fascinating things that happen. And the shift into a book was a desire to make something tactile uh, from my art practice and also from a childhood that's pre-internet. Um, I think Those of us who are there have a tendency to attribute that which is real to that which is tactile. You know, the the blog is, it's it's like, does it really exist? It's just virtual. It's not something you can hold. And I worked at a library for six years before I came to Metro, and books are a big deal for me. Love to read. And so the act of birthing out this art object that's something you can actually touch and share with people. And, you know, it's uh, it feels better than just saying, you know, here's a link. You know, if somebody wants to read this book, what are they going to take away? What I've been told by those who have is that they feel a shift in their perspective of how they think about strangers, that uh, we all have more in common than we don't, and that there are uh, commonalities that um, are pretty easy to talk about and share once um, you overcome the fear of... um, Uh, Should I be scared of this person or should I uh, trust my gut and think, okay, this is probably just 
some guy who looks the same during the day as he does at nighttime, and uh, we can have a conversation about um, this construction project that's in front of us or whatever else. So it might change their point of view on strangers. Yes. What emotions or what what are they going to feel as they're reading this book? What I what, um, one of the things I love hearing in terms of feedback is that it's de- they describe it to me as a human view on things like urban planning and transit and housing. These are concepts that we often discuss uh, in terms of numbers um, and more uh, from the intellectual side or the side of um, finance and stuff like that. This is the human angle. This is stories of people meeting each other and talking and uh, I think we process life through narratives, and these are little mini narratives. And there's an overarching theme through the whole book that I don't want to give too much away about. But uh, it's more than just a short story collection. It sort of has a has an arc that leads us towards acceptance and community and so on. So they'll yeah. laugh, they'll cry, they'll change their whole view on life. You could say that, Jeffrey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, so The Lines That Make Us, uh, you've written this book. You, you kind of spoke a little bit about it as what their takeaway from the book. But is there anything else, as somebody's feeling kind of lost or alone in this mm-hmm. city or seeing their community kind of vanish as um, m- new people move in and, and old people move out, um, is there anything that you've learned from your life journey that they could take away? What I'm reminded of is listening to two passengers on the bus. It was a couple, a young couple. And the young lady was telling uh, her companion that it's always only ever going to help to be able to be comfortable talking with others. Reaching out to others is not something that is going to hurt you. Knowing how to talk to people is something that is only going to help you, basically. And I agree with that. I will have conversations with folks who get on the bus who say, gosh, Nathan, I appreciate you as a bus driver because you're so friendly. And 20 years ago, when I lived here in Seattle, everyone was friendly. Um, And now uh, I can't talk to any of the people in my apartment building. And they're all, you know, 15 years younger than me and have a very different job than I do. And whenever someone says something like that, inevitably, you know, two or three other people will chime and say, gosh, that's exactly my situation as well. And if there's that many folks out here who feel similarly about the need for community, that's a great sign. It would be very easy for you and I to go out and find 100 people outside who agree with what we're seeing right now. And that's encouraging. It means that there is a sort of a, a trajectory that we can follow that's healthy and will build community. I'm excited by things like PCC announcing that they're no longer going to do the automated um, uh, machine for buying all your groceries. The checkout? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, because they want to establish a sense of community inside the store. And that we sort of have this collective assumption that might be more false than true, which is that strangers uh, don't like talking and that we're not going to get anything out of talking to them. But um, I think we're starting to realize that uh, we got to do something. We can't all just interact with the intermediary of technology um, separating us. So I gave you the tagline that you'll laugh, you'll cry, uh, and uh-huh. you'll change your perspective on life from the, the lines that make us your new book that's out. But can you share a story that a fu- one of the funnier stories from the book or from the blog that okay, uh, wow, Gosh. an interaction that we might not ever anticipate is going to happen on a bus? 
It's so hard to summon up one of those stories at will because there's so much that comes with them. Um, it's easier to talk more broadly about them. Uh, I'm trying to think of something that happened recently. Gosh, it's such an absurd world out there that sometimes when something happens that's completely normal, uh, it's hilarious and wild. There's a passenger who always screams the stop that she wants, such as James Street. She'll just yell the words James Street over <laughs> and over. And uh, I think that's hilarious. And <laughs> okay. I will yell back to her the same thing. And we'll do this sort of duet as we go down Third Avenue. We're both screaming the words James Street. Huh. And I think that's funny. I don't know what my passengers make of it. But um, okay. <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's a thing of flowing with your passengers rather than against them. And I had a moment when I was uh, early on in, the, in my career driving the bus and this guy got on and said, um, this is on the 70 also, uh, uh, going through South Lake Union, although it was not the Amazon powerhouse that it was yet, but it was still largely commuters on the route. And then you've got this one fellow, definitely not a commuter, sitting at the very front explaining to me how because the vice president is in town, the price for capturing gremlins is rising and that uh, the head price for a gremlin is connected to whether or not you have visiting famous people. I could imagine that would be and, true. <laughs> <laughs> and, I had, and I had three options of how to respond. Yeah. I could intimate to him that I thought he was crazy by not responding. I could uh, explicitly tell him that I think he's crazy by telling him to leave the bus or stop talking. Or I could take in whatever he was saying at face value as if it made complete sense hmm. and continue the conversation, which is what I did. Like you just now. Yeah, I said, well, okay, what about when the president is in town? Does that make the price for gremlins even higher? And then we started talking about if the gremlins are purple or not, that means, uh, you know, you've got a special one. Stuff like that. So and is there a hierarchy? Does the, is the president, <laughs> does that add more value to the gremlins? <laughs> I do not remember, but he had a complex answer and I enjoyed chatting with him about it. And... The other commuters in the background were chuckling to themselves and enjoying what was going on. And I think he had something over on all of them in that he felt comfortable chatting. Hmm. He was okay talking to a stranger. And uh, there's something we can gain from that. And that was a sort of a turning point for me of I'm not going to talk only to people who are similar to me. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go ahead and try and search for the common ground with anyone because uh, you can eventually find some. And in this case, it was the humor of, you know, talking about this gremlin stuff. Yeah, I wonder how much gremlins cost today. Um, oh, Got to be in the millions. <laughs> yeah. and, and so do you have any stories that kind of touched you that were actually rather sad almost? Um, yeah. So time will go by and you'll have a regular face who will get on that you won't see after a while. And you'll wonder, did that, did that person pass away? Uh, are they, did they move to another city? There's any number of reasons you're not seeing somebody on your route anymore. But sometimes you will find out, yes, they died. They mm -hmm. had an overdose. Um, and that will hit me pretty hard because, gosh, I saw that face for the last five, eight years. They'd sleep on my bus every night. Now they're dead. Um, or the opposite will happen. You'll learn that they got an apartment 
And something has happened to me several times throughout my career, which is I'll have someone who's, who's down and out, who's on the bus for a while, then I won't see them, you know, for six months, and then they will find me and come up to me and tell me with a fair amount of urgency, Nathan, look, or bus driver, look, if they don't know my name, I'm no longer homeless. I've got an apartment and a job. Thanks for being nice to me when I was. Oh. And they, I, I can sense the urgency in their voice when they say that to me. It's important for them to tell me, to convey to me that they figured it out. They, they did this huge, complicated, difficult thing of getting out of homelessness by overcoming whatever their individual uh, challenges were. And it's important for them to say that to someone who knew them when they were not at their best and to prove to me, as it were, and therefore to themselves, look, I'm, I'm capable of uh, keeping it together and doing okay. And that's happened a number of times throughout my career. It's, a, it's an interesting sort of regularity uh, with totally unconnected people. And uh, it's one of my favorite things about the job. You've shared a little bit of some of the comedy, some of the touching sadness, some of the touching hope, accumulating these stories, putting them out to the world, seeing people respond enough that you could write a book. How is this whole, what are your feelings about seeing what you've accomplished? It's humbling and inspiring. Um, the only reason I can call it an accomplishment for myself is because of the type of perspective and attitude that my readers have. It's really their accomplishment. Um, when I started the blog, I thought that the opinions and perspectives I was articulating were minority opinions. You know, are people going to go for this level of empathy uh, with street people or people who don't look like them or whatever else? Uh, and the answer is yes, in a huge way. And that's the most inspiring thing for me. Uh, people like community. People like fostering that and figuring out how to overcome these sort of normalities we've gotten accustomed to that are not that. Anything that you wanted to plug? We've got The Lines That Make Us, your book that's out now, uh, your blog, The View from Nathan's Bus, but you've also said you're a photographer and filmmaker. Uh, anything else that you wanted to, to plug um, before we wrap it up? Gosh, um, I wish I was better at being my own publicist. One of the things I'm worst at is uh, plugging my stuff and saying, you know, here's how great my stuff is. Come spend your own hard-earned money. <laughs> um, that's not something I'm skilled at. But uh, in terms of things I'm working on, the uh, one of the last major color darkrooms in uh, the U.S. just closed. And I made an enormous amount of color prints uh, there before that happened. And uh, we've been working on having those be in various galleries and so on and had a pretty large-scale show not too long ago of these huge, rich, beautiful prints that uh, you cannot create digitally and that won't be able to be generated again. That's very exciting. Also, I'm just about done with a short film that we've been working on for the past year, and we're jokingly calling it a medium-length film right now because it's, you know, it's half an hour or so, which is long for a short but short for a feature. And uh, it's uh, somewhat large-scale for a short. It involved the contributions of about 100 people. Oh. And um, it's in different languages and takes place over a long period of time. And uh, it might be okay. I'm too close to the project to be able to say if it's great or not. And what's it called? Uh, it's called Men I Trust. And it's about uh, women reflecting um, on tragedy and grief and a couple of people in her life. Any concluding thoughts? I did have one I want to share, and I'm not sure how much this explicitly relates, but I think it does uh, relate to how we, how we change our environment 
Um, I was at a play some years ago that was written by a local playwright. It was a new material, and it was about uh, violence against women in the college campus environment. And uh, afterwards, there was a Q&A with the playwright, and somebody got up and asked the playwright, okay, we're in here in Seattle. Uh, this is a liberal left-leaning crowd, and all of us probably already agree with the ideas in this play. How would you articulate these themes in a meaningful way uh, to an audience of people who were not so receptive to these ideas. And the playwright sat there and thought about it for a long time. Because up until now, the Q&A had just been those type of Q&A questions like, uh, do you ever get writer's block? Or, you know, um, what inspires you? And uh, he was very excited to get this actual meaty question. And finally, he said, what you're actually asking here is, how do you change the world? And the answer is, you don't change the world. You change the person next to you. And how do you change the person next to you? You don't. You just be yourself and lead by example, because you can't really change other people. But you can get them to change on their own. Um, and you do that by, by leading by example. And that's the thing we can do. And you know, my arms reach this wide. And within that arena is where I can affect change. And sometimes it feels like society is structured to limit uh, the individual's ability to affect change. Um, but it is possible. And uh, w without sounding horribly hubristic, maybe this book and blog is a small example of something like that. And I look forward to uh, those others of us in the community doing much larger and more exciting things that are similar. Nathan, thank you very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time and perspective. Jeffrey, a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Nathan shared how he found community on public transportation. My next interview explores public spaces as a means of facilitating community. Before we get to my interview with Maisha Barnett, I want to remind you that if you missed out on the sold-out red carpet premiere of On the Brink, you can catch the movie at the Northwest African American Museum on Tuesday, June 25th. Head to onthebrinkmovie.com to get tickets. As written in Crosscut, the history lesson here is one all Seattleites would benefit from learning. I hope you will join me there. Get your tickets ahead of time at www.onthebrinkmovie.com. Now, join me as I sit down with Maisha Barnett. I'm here at the KBFG studios with Maisha Barnett. Uh, she is a public space developer here in Seattle, um, helping to create spaces where the community can come together. Uh, Maisha, thank you for joining me today. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, so I asked this question, although I know the answer. It's a weirder question to ask of you. Tell me about what brought you to Seattle. <laughs> What brought me to Seattle? Uh, well, my family has been here for decades. Um, I'm actually fifth generation. Um, my second great-grandfathers, paternal great-grandfathers, each arrived in 1883, one in Roslyn, Washington, to work in the coal mines, and the other in the Federal Way, Tacoma area on 157 acres of land. So we've been here for a little while. So been here a, lot of, uh, a long time. And there's been this podcast has been inspired by the rapid change that's happening in these last six to seven years. Uh, what changes have struck you most in the time? Um, I guess it, it, over the whole time is these last seven years. Are these last seven years different to you than previously? Or uh, from your perspective, what changes are most striking in Seattle? Right. Overall, in the city, I would say the construction and increased density. Um, also, uh, with that. Density and the population rise, there's been more traffic, uh, more um, overall 
dissatisfaction with the quality of life in Seattle, at least from Seattleites. And what about from your per personal perspective? From my personal perspective, I agree with all of the above. Now you've invested your uh, your time into um, the redevelopment of Powell Barnett Park and also the development of Jimi Hendrix Park. What motivated you to invest your time in those two projects? Um, decided to develop Powell Barnett Park, one, because I was inspired by the work of my grandfather, and then also because I completed a fundraising management program at the University of Washington and had never worked for a nonprofit before. And the idea was just to make some improvements. The park was named after him in 1969, and although it's 4.4 acres in size, it only had one tire swing. It had never been updated. So um, that experience turned out to be really successful. I partnered with Starbucks Coffee Company, who donated $550,000, and the overall project was $1.3 million. And after completing that park, it really brought the community back together, and it brought a lot of different um, organizations to the park, individuals to the park, uh, and became like a destination park for the city of Seattle. And so... Tell me about your grandfather. Why is his name on a public park here in Seattle? Because he was a great guy, just overall. Um, uh, then also he did a lot for his community. So he um, was one of the founders of the NAACP, also East Mer Meredith Matthews YMCA. Um, and he was also the founding president of Leshite Improvement Council, which is now the Leshite Community Council. Uh, he also helped reestablish Japanese internment um, victims, if you will, once they returned home. And just has a laundry list of really wonderful things that he did for his community. And so you, the, the park was dedicated to him back in the 60s. Right. And you redeveloped it. And then you were involved in the development of a Jimi Hendrix park. Tell me about that. Well, there was a lot that happened in between. So after uh, the initial redevelopment of Powell Barnett Park was in 2006. In that same year, we partnered with Coyote Jun uh, Junior High, and that was called Coyote Central, to uh, create a entryway at the northeast corner with um, 24 junior high school students and four artists. And... Um, the development of Power Net Park extended over a number of years. We then later added a, a larger picnic area in the north end of the park, and then most recently a fitness zone, um, and upgraded the basketball courts with the Kevin Durant Foundation. Um, because of those efforts, and then also being on certain committees like the Pro Parks Levy Oversight Committee, the King County Parks Board, etc., I was later sought out by a member of the Friends of Jimi Hendrix Park to join that committee. And why is it Jimi Hendrix Park here in Seattle, for those who don't know? Right. Well, because Jimmy is a West Coast Seattle boy and city of Seattle is his home. In fact, the park is located within a mile of his childhood home and also uh, the elementary schools that he attended, such as Washington and uh, Leshy and Garfield High School. And so where could people find Jimi Hendrix Park and, and what, what's been developed there? Right. So Jimi Hendrix Park lies um, in a green belt. It's located on top of the I-90 lid at 23rd and South Massachusetts Street. It's just adjacent to the Northwest African American Museum. Uh, and the space uh, was initially the parking lot of Coleman Elementary School and then was later developed by the city with 
just some lawn and like irrigation. So in 2009, the Friends of Jimi Hendrix Park decided to create a space that was uh, representative of its namesake and started the process, which, as you can see, 10 years later. Jimi Hendrix Park is like 2.4 acres, it's just south of Sam Smith Park, and then beyond that is the Seattle Children's Play Garden. The park itself is in the embodiment of Jimi Hendrix. Um, so it's based upon both a spiral flower and a guitar, which is in the landscape. We also have a chronological timeline of his life that is the center, I'm sorry, the neck of the guitar, um, which represent the frets. And uh, two of his song lyrics are in the park landscape itself, Angel and Little Wing. Um, and uh, what's coming is what we call the shadow wave wall. We expect that to be kind of like the gem of the landscape, which is a sculptural piece representing sound waves that each have images of Jimmy. The two side pieces have silhouette cutouts of him, and the, se- the center piece has an image of his face. And so you've put a lot of time into honoring uh, Jimi Hendrix and kind of uh, embodying who he was and, and connecting him to, you know, his, his home here in, in Seattle. Beyond the honoring of Jimi Hendrix, talk about what you hope that park means to the community and how it ties to what we're talking about in this podcast, which is finding community in a dynamic city. I would have to go back to Powell Barnett Park in order to answer that question, simply because Powell Barnett Park is been a long-standing green space in the central area and again it wasn't named for my grandfather until 1969 but prior to that it was used by Garfield High School as their running track. It was also used by um, CAYA and it was used by um, a military establishment. It was referred to as Army Camp and um, I mentioned that because over the years um, it has changed its name but the use has remained the same in terms of serving the community. So you have different generations with different experiences, and therefore you have the history of the park in its landscape that's multi-generational. What we hope to have at uh, Jimi Hendrix Park is to establish the same type of experiences and the same type of memories, and also to inspire people to tap into their own artistic abilities. the park is adjacent to the Northwest African American Museum, so we see it as an arts and cultural hub, especially as the city continues to grow. Uh, and the light rail station will, the East Link light rail station will soon be directly across the street from it. So we're hoping, we're kind of planning both with, uh, the development of the park itself, with the activation of the park itself, and then just the fact that the park is there in its complete in its positioning, that um, it will become a hub for the city of Seattle, but in particular for the residents of the Central District. And talk me through, you know, you, you go to a park. Some people might just go to walk their dogs or just to take a walk by themselves. How do these public spaces build connections or a sense of belonging? to other people? Well, of course you have um, just the space itself allows one to have spontaneous meetings with other people uh, and then also to have a more livable, walkable neighborhood being in a green space and there are health benefits associated with that. Uh, And having organizations, whether it be the Northwest African American Museum or Roots, the relative of old-time Seattleites, 
um, hold events in these spaces or churches. A lot of churches in particular have their uh, annual picnics at Powell Barnett Park, for se, per se. Uh, family reunions happen in the park. Um, and so this builds on creating connections between people. In addition to that, when we go back to Powell Barnett Park, it brought people together in the sense that people who live three blocks south or five blocks west who never met each other before, they're now spending time there and they're getting to know their neighbors. Um, one of the really surprising things for me is seeing hundreds of people in either of these parks, you know, whether it be the museum hosting uh, an MLK Day and having 2,000 people spill into Jimi Hendrix Park, or uh, a snow day. On a snow day this past year, there were uh, lots of children and families um, snow sledding on the hills of Powell Barnett Park. And, you know, they brought out their vats of, um, of hot chocolate and just made a day out of it. And um, you mentioned Sam Smith Park is nearby. Can you tell the audience a little bit? You know, a lot of times people go to these parks and they see names, but they don't know much behind the name. Jimi Hendrix, they obviously know. Right. Uh, your grandfather, Powell Barnett, you shared uh, a little bit about why his name is there. Sam Smith, do you want to share a little bit about that name? Sam Smith was the first African-American uh, King, well, not King County, Seattle City Council member. Um, and uh, so that's why the park was named after him. Seattle is growing dramatically. A lot of people don't know the history of Seattle. Why are there so many parks named after African-Americans in the Central District in particular? So again, my family arrived in 1883, but the first of them who came to Seattle were in 1906. And that was my uh, grandfather, pal Samuel Barnett, and grandmother, Catherine Vale Barnett, uh, and they moved to the Leshy neighborhood in 1906. Um, at that time, it was still predominantly Jewish and Japanese. And over the years, um, more as more people migrated uh, from the South and then to Seattle as well. Uh, in particular, um, they were designated to particular parts of the city, and um, now we know that as redlining. Uh, but they were also um, restricted from living in certain places based upon covenants that were on the deeds of homes. Um, so, see, the central district in Seattle became predominantly black, uh, primarily between the years of 1940 to up to 1970, and it kind of peaked in 1970 at 73% black. It has since um, gone down in its total population where there's been migration out of the neighborhood into the suburbs, uh, and then also uh, the effects of gentrification displacement, which now has the African-American population at less than 14%. So the Central District has changed. The demographics have changed dramatically. What does it mean to you to have a series of very nice parks in that area of Seattle named after these prominent African-American leaders and, and notable musicians and such? Well, it speaks to the legacy of the space. And again, it talks about the history and the landscape. Um, and just as there are parks named after African Americans, there's also uh, institutions like the Langston Hughes Performing Arts Institute. Um, and th in this way, uh, the history is still there. It also uh, demonstrates that there's a sense of belonging for African Americans in the Central District, especially as it continues to change 
at this point. Uh, so uh, it's a celebration for many people to say this is our history, but then also this is the future, the present and the future that we're going to maintain in this space. Cities changing dramatically. Uh, some people are looking for a sense of belonging. What can be learned from your experience uh, redeveloping Powell Barnett Park to make it a more desirable uh, community gathering space and then uh, your part in uh, bringing Jimi Hendrix Park to reality? What can somebody learn from the, your experience? Uh, well, first I would say you need to listen to the people because just because you build it, people don't come. Uh, and with Powell Barnett Park, there was an extensive public outreach process in which we did a survey, we knocked on doors, we held public meetings, and we really listened to what people wanted and how they wanted to use the space. And so the space itself is a reflection of their needs. Uh, and I would say that's that's what should happen with any development, is that you should pay attention to the people who live there and um, build something that caters to their needs. Um, that said, you should also be nimble enough to change and grow when that, when those needs change and grow. So uh, an example would be adding a fitness zone at Powell Barnett Park, which is speaks to equitable access uh, and uh, looking at the demographics and seeing where a need needs to be and creating that opportunity. Walk me through the feelings that you've had as you see the fruits of your hard work? You know, it's like no other feeling, really. The first time, again, that I saw like 200 people in a park was just overwhelming because, honestly, I started off building um, or wanting to make improvements at Powell Barnett Park in particular um, just kind of because I didn't see myself in the nonprofit world and I had a connection to the park. I had no idea that it would develop into the space that it has, that it would be so meaningful to so many people. Uh, and it's it's really, you know, to say that it's heartwarming sounds a little squishy, but honestly, it really is heartwarming. And to see when I pass on occasion, uh, whether it be a group of kids playing basketball or soccer, seeing the multiple uses of the space and also the multiple generations that are using the space because you have a lot of parents with children who are in the play area, you have older people, you have teenagers, and it really is a community gathering space. So um, it is definitely, I think heartwarming is the right word to describe the feeling that I have when I see this. Any advice for somebody out there who is looking for a sense of community, looking for a sense of belonging, Either they're new to the city or they've been here and they've seen it change and, and wonder their place in it. As a longtime uh, resident of the city, I tend to think that I have the right to any space. <laughs> in, in, wherever I go, I belong. And um, for some people, uh, they don't feel that way. But um, I think instead of complaining about not seeing oneself, that we should celebrate who we are, where we are. Um, and for me, it's about making connections to other people. Uh, in that sense, you build community by getting to know your neighbors, by becoming involved in local events, by using the spaces, um, and not feeling that you're un 
welcome or restricted in any way. Any concluding thoughts? I would say in these times of uh, rapid growth, gentrification, and displacement, that we all need to be more involved in our communities uh, and to invest in the things that are really important to us before they disappear. And we do that by using these spaces. We do that by connecting with others. Um, and we do that by uh, staking a claim and making our voices heard to those who have the power, but then also by taking the power ourselves. And I say that because I never intended I to do to create public spaces. And so in addition to like developing Pal Barnett Park or overseeing the development of Jimi Hendrix Park, I've had a million other little battles like working, uh, fighting against uh, SDOT, Seattle Department of Transportation, just to get signage, directional signage to the park and calling up WASDOT and saying, I want to build a trail on your land. And I did it. So more than anything, I think people feel when they feel powerless, they need to realize that they're not, that they have the ability to make change in their neighborhood. In fact, I would say that they are the change and that they are the most valuable assets in the city. Maisha, thank you very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time and perspective. Thank you for having me. That is all for today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast. Now I want to hear from you. How are you building or finding community in this dynamic city? Reach out to me on Twitter, at Prof Shulman, to let me know. Or come tell me in person at the next screening of On the Brink, Tuesday, June 25th at the Northwest African American Museum. Head to www.onthebrinkmovie.com to get tickets. Don't just take it from me. The stranger deemed it as, quote-unquote, worth watching. And Crosscut noted that the history lesson here is one all Seattleites would benefit from learning. Go to www.onthebrinkmovie.com to get tickets. Our premiere sold out, so pause this podcast now, get on your phone, and get tickets today. Next week, we explore communities being built around entertainment. You will hear a perspective from comedy and from sports as I sit down with Alex Grindeland of Comedy Sports Seattle and John Barr of NHL to Seattle. Before we close out this episode, I want to thank Pamela Burton for her help with the audio and Ed Cromer for his work on the UW Foster School of Business blog. I also want to acknowledge the lovely voice you heard at the introduction to this episode. That was the voice of Lydia Ramsey, who appeared on Season 4 of Seattle Growth Podcast, which explored the past, present, and future of Seattle's music scene. And before we close out, I also have to thank Kristen Anderson and Andrew Kruger from the UW Foster School of Business and Jasmine Scott and Tim Lennon of Langston, Seattle. Together, they joined forces to host the red carpet premiere of On the Brink. It was a memorable evening that launched valuable conversations, and I appreciate UW Foster and Langston, Seattle co-hosting the event. I hope you'll join me next week. And in the meantime, I'm Jeff Schulman, and I thank you for joining me on this journey in the sixth season of Seattle Growth Podcast.